You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash NYGBC. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. But you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we've decided to be a university now. <laughs> my name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, a disgrace to the profession of amateur podcasters. <laughs> Benedict, what is a conspiracy theory that you think would be the most fun if it were actually true? Oh, the most fun. Um... I have these thoughts from time to time okay. where I sit around and I go, what if all these wackadoo weirdos, like the QAnon folks, right? Mm-hmm. What if, just, I know it's not, but imagine a world where all the things they believe were actually true. Yeah, I think. What th- kind th- of <laughs> crazy place would we be living in? For, for me, the lizard people, I think, just because oh, that would yeah. just have such a, that would have such David a Ike weird. Style, because you're a big David Icke soccer fan. I am fan, a, a big David Icke fan, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's me, that's me. Um, the, yeah, the queen, I uh, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I remember I've, I've, I've heard plenty of variations of the David Icke story over time. Yep. Um, because, you know, he lost his goddamn mind somehow. Uh, but like one of them is something to do with the queen actually being a ten foot tall, oh, shape shifting lizard. lizard. She's a lizard, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Right. Sometimes it's shape shifting, and sometimes it's like there are puppets that they use. I don't know how it works exactly. Um, it's all nonsense, but I do agree that'd be a very fun conspiracy to be true. Yeah, I think so. What about you? For me, I think the one I find most that I think would be most interesting uh, is the sort of sovereign citizen idea. That uh, there are actually trusts created in all of our names when we're born mm. with millions of dollars in them. And the globalists, by which they mean Jews, have control of them all because our birth certificates are printed in uppercase letters. And if we just go to the courts and file the right paperwork, we can get access to those trusts with millions of dollars. I would love for that one to be true <laughs> and for that to cause... Uh, money to basically become worthless when everyone gets their millions <laughs> yeah, of dollars. Yeah, thought through the implications of this. It would okay. First of all, it worries me that you even know about that. Second of all, <laughs> Benedict, we are doing an episode about sovereign citizens in the future. Okay. I have a half-written note sheet of where that one's going. Okay, that's fine. Uh, second of all, have you tried it, <laughs> Benedict? I am a member of the state bar. I believe I might get in a bit of trouble if I walked into court and started demanding a judge give me my millions of dollars. 
I mean, it just might cause some problems for my career. Yeah, as much as I think it might be fun to try, Kevin, I have seen said YouTube that, videos of people trying it, there and they are, have all failed. <laughs> okay, from from what I have seen, there are a bunch of absolutely nutso members of the legal yeah. profession. So oh, yeah. let's not pretend <laughs> that doing this would do any particular. Honestly, it might further your career in the state that you're in. <laughs> It depends on who I want to have as clients in the long term. Yeah. Anyways, Benedict, you probably know, but the listeners might not, what they exactly do. it is that we do here on this program. And to them, I would say that this is the show where we go deep, 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 plumbing the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction. And in between, we take a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. I think that I finally landed on that formulation as the the new intro to the show. I've been, okay. I've been kicking it around a little bit the last couple of weeks. I think that's about where we are. So, Benedict, start us off. Do you have a hot take for us this week? Uh, yes, I do. And it is that hot water bottles are the best. Like, old-timey. Old-timey. I'll show you right now. I have a hot old water. My back is, my back is fucked. You're only 30. You're not old enough for this. My back is fucked. And this is, uh, oh, this, this is Fitzwilliam. He has an owl that contains a hot water bottle. <laughs> So I'm sat with Fitzwilliam on my back. And everyone should have hot water bottles. They are so much better than that microwave your own corn shit that people do here. <laughs> you know what I mean. They're like vaguely lavender scented. I can verify that your house smells entirely of Ben Gay. Yeah. I can verify that much. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's my hot take. Very good. Okay. That's, what about you? Uh, Benedict, we could do a college. You and I? We can oh, go to college. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Going back, I mean, both of us have advanced degrees, right? We, <laughs> Absolutely. So we have a law we school could do and a, an English department right here, college. as well as a foreign language department. We own a lot of books. We got enough to basically start a library, I'd say. You've got a bookshelf. I've got a bookshelf. We mm -hmm. combine them together. That's a library. All I'm saying is we can totally do, let's say, Houston University. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Sure. Maybe it's more like Galveston University for I, us. I think we could do, uh, I, I, yeah, Galveston. I think we could do St. Louis University, honestly. <laughs> Actually, Washington University in St. Louis is a very highly acclaimed I'm, university. I'm sure it is, but so is the University program. of Texas in I've Austin. I've been told by everyone I know and work with here how great these places are. Uh -huh. uh, but Benedict, look, no, it, this last week I was I was completely enamored and could not stop chuckling over the newly declared basically what they did was the uh michael scott i declare bankruptcy except i declare a university yep. yelling it into the air that's basically what happened this last week with mm -hmm. austin university the new school of Something. the intellectual dark yep. we dark web um where your essays will be uh 20 string twitter threads that that's you can right. turn in i mean this it's it's a joke for a reason because mm -hmm. there are a bunch of fucking know nothings who literally are concerned more with putting out spicy takes than anything having to do with education. I just thought it was really funny, and uh, I do think I do think we should start our own university. So be uh, sure. be on the watch. Yeah, NYGBCU coming yep. soon. This We're will be started. This podcast will be the basis for our literature one hundred and one <laughs> course. <laughs> we will just force people to listen to our podcast discussions. Yes, absolutely. Benedict, let's move on a little bit. What 
is on your bookshelf this week. Well, I'm going to annoy you because uh, oh I... Uh, You're it, recommending it, anime? No, I'm recommending... <laughs> no, that would not annoy you. You might faint from love. Um, I'm recommending a TV show, though, and it is... Have you watched Ted Lasso? No, I have not. Everyone okay. talks about it. And, uh, you know, you know how I am with soccer. Yeah. Uh, just can't. It just I, doesn't So I, I thought I wouldn't like it. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know how stubborn I am when people tell yeah. me I would like, when more than like three people are like, you should watch this. I'm, I'm like, aware, well, I'll... Benedict, I am constantly telling you to check things out. I will never <laughs> watch it. Um, but I finally, I finally got around to watching it and it feels like it was written for me. Oh, right? Like it was, it's cause it's like, it's it, cause I get, it's an American show set in England. So mm-hmm. I get both the American jokes and yeah, the British yeah. jokes. And then also it's about like cynical Brits slowly being won over by an overly enthusiastic American. And I feel like that's my life story. (laughs) So it is, it is precisely. And also it's about soccer, which is my, my sport. So sure. It's, but it's about an American football coach. Athletic activity. Yeah. Athletic activity. It it is more of a sport than American football. I'm sorry. No physical contact doesn't count. There is physical contact. It's a contact no. sport. What are you talking no. about? No. You you can't you can't invoke American football and then soccer and say that soccer is a contact. Soccer sport. is a contact sport. I bet. I sorry. Just because people don't wear fucking helmets and like full battle armor to go into it, it is a contact hey, sport. Ben, and also, there are not currently multiple class action lawsuits pending around the country about CTE in soccer. So hit me up when that happens. I'm, they probably are. <laughs> they also don't let they they don't let children head the ball because it's bad for their brain development. Oh, apparently, fine, whatever. <laughs> there, you go. See, so don't come at me. Also, people get horrible injuries from soccer all the time. Someone snapped their ankle in half, literally like a couple weeks oh. ago. Yeah, oh, it's bad. Little ankle, little it's chicken bad. ankle. Oh, well, it's bad. So sad. It's bad. All right, relax. What about your your? I don't even know what I'm asking. Going all flustered. We <laughs> <laughs> have to defend me, soccer's honor. For me, I am recommending everyone go check out Court TV. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of coverage the last couple of weeks of several trials that are all ongoing at once. Right, we've got the trial of uh, Ahmad Arbery's uh, murderers, the mm-hmm. uh, Mick. I don't, I don't know why I'm blanking on their names at the moment. The Mick somethings, uh, Mick Poyles. That works. Um, also, uh, of course, the Rittenhouse trial, and then, of course, there's the Charlottesville Nazi trial that is going mm-hmm. on right now, the civil case. It seems like, at the moment, America is very wrapped up in trials, and a lot of people don't seem to understand at all how they work. I get people being angry at Rittenhouse's judge. He judge seems bad. Case. I don't know anything he's, about it. He seems he's not great. Yeah. He's a douchebag. And I would say that there are things he's done throughout this trial which were improper, um, I'd say I disagree with some of his rulings, but the other part of me goes, mm, I never want to agree with the prosecutors because in general, prosecutors are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's that weird thing where we're all at the moment flipped because we, fu- you know, occasionally there is a just prosecution of a high profile case. Right. Um, so I would encourage people go check out court TV and see how cases run. You'll get to see a lot of judges that are a lot better than uh, the judge in that case. You get to see some that are worse than the judge in that case. And the one thing I'd point out is some of the things that people are getting the most angry about the Rittenhouse judge for Mm. are not the things in particular that you should be angry about in that case. One of the things the other day, there was a video going around of him yelling at the prosecution counsel. Um, 
And people were saying, oh, he's on the, he's, you know, he's basically working for the defense. And again, I would say, I want the judge working for the defense in general. That's just how I want things to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if we have to say that they're working for one side, right, that, that sort of slant is what people are getting at. Um, yep. I would like it to be slanted towards the defense. But in that case, the prosecution had tried to introduce evidence that the judge had already ruled before the trial began was not going to be admissible. If you do that, you're going to make a judge very angry, and yep. they might yell at you. Um, so people getting mad about that particular moment, mm, that's not the moment to get mad about. It's really not. Maybe be mad at the fact that he wouldn't allow that evidence to be entered in the first place. Don't get mad at him being angry for someone disobeying his orders. Judges just don't tend to like that. So go check out Court TV. They have, you know, you can watch the entirety of the OJ trial on Court TV on demand. It's free. You can watch all these trials. Um, I, I watch them all the time because I'm a nerd like that. Yes, Some, can one of my confirm. Yeah, uh, but uh, check it out. Core TV, it's free. You got all the apps, all the places. Anyways, Benedict, why don't we move on a Did little bit? Did you watch Dune yet? Got watch what? Dune. I have not seen Dune. Kevin! I, Benedict, I have not gone to movie theaters. Okay, it's I on HBO still... Max. It is? Yeah. Why did nobody tell me this? <laughs> well, came I out on, on HBO, HBO Max. Max in a while. <laughs> you should um, watch it in the movie theater, but true. if I, you, you know, can't... I, you should watch it on HBO Max. I, I Well, now that I know it's there, I probably will. But, you know, okay. um, I live in Missouri. This state is not uh, one of the best in the nation as far as vaccination rates and wearing masks and COVID infection rates. Uh, so I still, I'm not doing those things like going to the movies or I haven't even gone to get, ma- I cut my hair myself because I yeah, still I can wear, tell. You know, don't want to go, <laughs> shut up. I still don't want to go to a barber or anybody and have somebody breathe on me for half an hour. You know, that kind of stuff. Fair enough. Uh, but uh, now that I know it's on HBO Max, I'll check it out. Okay. Um, housekeeping, Benedict. Remember, of course, rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on the social medias at NYGBCPod. And I have two little updates Ooh. this week. Not so much updates so much as further comments. A couple weeks ago, it sort of came up. You asked me a question about, and I think we were, it was the Marjorie Taylor Greene episode, mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of different meta conspiracies that exist out there. Um, you sort of thought that she was under the massive communist conspiracy meta theory, when really she's more under the QAnon um, meta conspiracy, mm-hmm. which I think is its own, its own thing. I just wanted to point out that I think I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that the similarities, and there are a bunch of these different meta conspiracies out there, I think the similarities between them all is that they focus on a distrust or a hatred for the keepers of the prevailing paradigm. And that's why you can get things that contradict each other Mm -hmm. or that just don't make sense together, but that people who believe in the same meta conspiracy will stand side by side and say, well, I don't agree with that guy that it's the Jews doing it, but I agree with him that there's definitely a lot of stuff out there that we don't trust and that, that we, we don't know against whoever yeah. they are, right? That's how you can get these people with blatantly anti-Semitic beliefs standing next to, you know, a wine mom from the suburbs who just, you know, got got red-pilled on Instagram by fucking... Red-pilled, black-pilled, it feels like black-pilled to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, whatever it is. But that's how you end up with that sort of thing. The second thing I want to bring up, and this also goes to um, our last episode. Uh, so mm-hmm. our last episode, if any of you listened to it, the audio quality 
we had some issues. Yep. Uh, and I want to apologize for that right off the front. It was I Kevin's fault not, this time. It wasn't my it fault. It was genuinely <laughs> my fault. It was genuinely my fault. Uh, I hope that's not happening right now as we record. Uh, what I think happened is I had a cable that was going bad between my soundboard and the computer where I record. Um, so I replaced that cable. I plugged it into a different USB port. I'm hoping all went... I did a test run uh, and checked over the audio to make sure it was good. I hope that's not happening now. If it is, I'll have to, you know, figure something out and replace the soundboard, whatever the case might be. But, um, so because we had that sound issue, what I want to do is I think this next patron-only bonus episode uh, will be available for everyone. I'm going to put it out on the regular feed. You're all going to get to hear it. Uh, sort of as my apologies for that, that all those issues we had in that last episode. And it's a shame because I really enjoyed funny. that last episode. We had a lot of fun with those two very stupid videos, right? The All the stuff about the conservative comedians not understanding why they're not funny and uh, the, the stuff we talked about as far as people, uh, the right being more prone to believe that literal satire is reality uh, and how, you know, the Babylon Bee contributed to that by being bad at comedy. Um, I, I thought that was great stuff and so much of it was just lost because of all these issues I had with the record. So I apologize for that. Like I said, we're going to try and make the, I'm going to make the patron only available for everyone so you can all hear it. It's going to be another chapter of our review of None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen and Larry Abraham. I think we're on chapter eight or so in that right now. So you'll be able to hear that. We have a lot of fun whenever we do those. Mm-hmm. But going back to the first half of that episode, which I think the audio wasn't so terrible in, um, the argument about there being a republic rather than a democracy. Oh, yeah. And the false dumb. choice that we keep getting presented. I think that most of that wasn't as messed up audio-wise as the second video when we got into that. Um, And it's come up a lot with a lot of the authors that we've read in the past. And I think one of the things that I just came up in my thoughts as I was going through the edit and thinking about it over the last week is that this argument that we've heard from Glenn Beck, that we've heard from Dinesh D'Souza, that we've heard from whatever that dickbag was that we watched talk about it last week, mm-hmm. is that this argument mixes, sort of without noting, noticing, or maybe noticing but intentionally doing this, the form of government argument versus the protection of liberties argument. I think this is particularly noteful if you look back at what Glenn Beck said about it in his book and the way he talked about it. Uh-huh. Um, the, he, he kept talking about uh, constitutional limitations um, and, you know, democracy. If we had an actual democracy, then it would just be the vote of the majority that would be able to take away people's rights. Yep. Um, and I just wanted to note that obviously that's just not true because you can have, like we have in this government, uh, constitutional protections that require, you know, a supermajority or some ridiculous procedure like, uh, you know, a majority of the states plus a vote of both houses, you know, the constitutional amendment procedure, all this stuff that keep those limitations in place, those protections for individual liberties. So it's not just a majority, but they mix these two together, Mm -hmm. which, right, we have the representative democracy where people are elected to go to a place and vote on laws. Uh, They mix that with this argument that it's really about protecting individual liberties. uh, And the two just don't make sense together at all. Yep. And and once again, I mean, no country in the world, as we said last week, but I think it's worth noting again, has true direct democracy. So... Yep, so they're just arguing against a boogeyman that doesn't exist. Yep. Anyways, Benedict, uh, we, uh, this week, uh, you know, we said last time uh, we recorded ahead of time uh, some stuff, and, and then we had all those issues last week, and I have not been keeping track, and I don't think anyone has, so I don't think we have any new additions this week to our New World Spooky World Order. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to note, again, anyone 
can become a member of our spooky new world order uh, by just uh, tweeting about the show, posting about us on Facebook, writing us a review on iTunes, uh, even become a patron. I'll put you in the spooky new world order, whatever the case might be, uh, and then uh, let me know about it, and I'll make sure to add you into our spooky new world order. Uh, But Benedict, all that out of the way. Why don't we finally get back to what has, it feels like it's been a while since we've gotten into it. It really does. Even though it's only been two weeks. Because we pre-recorded, yes. Yeah. Our book review of God and Man at Yale, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William Frank Buckley Jr., America's Fake Accent. Benedict, (laughs) what did we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read the first half of chapter two, Individualism at Yale, in which Big Bill Buckley bemoans the collectivist Stalinist nature of the USA in uh, the early 1950s. Yes, yes, he absolutely does. To be fair, though, to be this fair, is a guy it's just who we Yale. know. It's just Yale. Yes. But just a few years after this, he did write a book about how William McCarthy was right. I mean, it wasn't all that long after this book came out that he wrote, uh, I think it's called McCarthy and His Enemies is the name yeah. of that book. Yeah, he loved so McCarthy. Big certainly fan. through the, the fucked up lenses he's looking through, America was collectivist and Stalinist in the early 50s, so... <laughs> Not all that far out there. But Benedict, do you have an alternate chapter title for us this week? I do. Uh, and it is, uh, what new deal was that again? A deal. Somebody's talking about deals. Yeah. Uh, I have one as well. Mine, Benedict. Uh, Economies of Fail. <laughs> that is my title this week. That's because, a good one. as you may guess or not, based off of that nonsense chapter title that Buckley gave us, Individualism at Yale, this whole chapter is complaining of that the economics textbooks used in the Introduction to Economics class at Yale apparently have Keynesian thought in them. Yeah, and also, like, 30 people... They believe people that the government major... can spend money without yeah. being evil. No consequences, yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's strange. It certainly is that. But Benedict, he starts off this chapter by saying, quote... In June of 1949, William C. Devane, dean of Yale College, addressed the graduating class roughly as follows. That seems so weird to me because he then goes on to quote him exactly. I have have that underlined, that roughly underlined. Yeah, me too. It's like, it's a whole block quote. Like, did you just fuck up the transcription? Within that block quote, there is quotes. There are quotation marks within that block quotes, which... I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You, I can't explain it. I don't know what Buckley was thinking with this. But apparently he said something along the line of, quote, Several periodicals of national circulation have described the graduating class of 1949 as primarily interested in seeking security. The journalists tell us that security and the avoidance of risk are ends that loom foremost in your minds. I would remind you that it was just 100 years ago that Americans of every type and description invaded the West Coast in search of their fortunes. Invaded is definitely the right word there, by the way. Yes, that is the right word. (laughs) And formed the vanguard of a vast colonial movement which increased immeasurably the health and strength of this country. I would remind you that it was they and men like them who have brought this country to greatness. It was not men who sought security first. Adventure and enterprise next who built Yale. I would say that if these periodicals are correct, if it is true that your attitudes lent weight to their conclusions, then Yale has failed. For Yale expects of her graduates nothing more than a sodden search for security. Something more, something more, yeah, not yeah, nothing yeah. more. Something more. She would see in you something of the spirit... That 
and the drive of the 49ers. Has nothing to do with anything in the rest of the chapter. It's a really weird way to open it. Well, it does, I think, you and I having the perspective of, you know, knowing a bit more about right-wing thought than the average bear know that what he's getting at there is this uh, bullshit argument that always try to make that it's about individualism and yeah, you know, yeah. he gave us the tip off to that but this idea that it's about that, that there's something comparable between um owning a pig iron factory and being a pioneer who crossed the country with uh lewis and clark and made it yep. to the west coast right it's you know people of that ilk always want to think of themselves in mm-hmm. far more grandiose terms than they actually deserve you know especially since that pig iron factory owner might have inherited all the money from his father that ended up buying that factory to begin with but yeah he took from that address i guess that he should himself william f buckley become a barrier to progress i'm guessing <laughs> I mean, think about it. We know that the the motto of the National Review was stand athwart history yelling stop, right? Somehow he wants to take from that speech he just transcribed or roughly remembered, whatever the case might be, and say that's, that's, I guess he, I'm certain that he thinks he embodies those principles. Oh, yeah. That's, you know. Yeah, the spirit of the 49ers. But he continues in his own words now, quote, Perhaps Yale traditionally has engendered something of the spirit of a fool. Okay, you have to start. You can't do that accent the whole episode. Well, I know you want to. I have realized, mm-hmm. I will say, I have realized that the William F. Buckley uh, accent is really just Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> it's J- it's Captain Jack Sparrow sober. Yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is. Uh, but perhaps Yale traditionally has engendered something of the spirit of the 49ers. But if the recent Yale graduate who exposed himself to Yale economics during his undergraduate years exhibits enterprise, self-reliance, and independence, it is only because he has turned his back upon his teachers and texts. It is because he has not hearkened to those who assiduously disparage the individual, glorify the government, enshrine security, and discourage self-reliance. It, it, I find it interesting that whenever we have these arguments about like what gets taught at universities it completely takes away the agency of students to disagree with what Mm -hmm. they're being taught right like sure i find that very interesting just because it's like oh well they're only being taught about but like people could be like no this seems wrong like yeah no i i certainly had many professors who you know made arguments about x or y throughout you know law school undergrad where i go "Eh, i think you're stretching or "Eh, i just don't agree with where you're going with that I, I might not have stood up in class and screamed at them like Buckley would, but, you know, I just didn't follow along with what they were saying. Also, I think it's obvious he's massively blowing out of proportion here. The impact of a first-year economics class which like yeah. people's way of thinking, yep. right? Because obviously I, what it is I literally is... couldn't tell you half of the classes that I took from my yep. major in my first mm-hmm. year. Yeah, certainly. Most of us can't. But I mean, he's because for Buckley, the most important thing towards how an individual is, how a person thinks and lives and reacts, is what they're taught when they're eighteen. Their view of uh, you know monetary policy and basic economics as taught in a first year course. That's I mean, but he continues. He follows that paragraph by saying, "Quote." Much of the matter that I shall present present to substantiate these claims is interpretable. I believe the net influence of Yale economics to be thoroughly collectivistic. If the reader disagrees, 
that is surely his privilege. Mm. So we went on that fucking roller coaster yeah. of this being the most important thing, of Yale being destroyed by this collectivist idea to... Yeah, you might disagree. And yeah, that's that's totally right. That's your individual right to disagree with me. Thanks, William. Yeah, it's it's really fucking strange. But the one thing I noticed through these first couple pages, and probably throughout the majority of what we've read so far, um, is there is an obsession that I see in what Buckley says in this chapter with power in the same way that we saw it with Glenn Beck and Dinesh D'Souza, mm-hmm. where they talk about everything's in terms of power and who has the power, and then it's all about power. It's not about, you know, why someone might want the power to do X. It's that they just want power for power's sake. Yeah. Which is always a, a bullshit argument. But we've run across it a number of different places. Yeah, many. So he, you know, it's a little bit more, uh, I think the majority of these first two pages here are him, again, like we got a little bit in the last chapter, explaining away why he didn't do the hard work. Oh, it's- yeah. Let, let me add that my remarks in this chapter in no way <laughs> attempt to rebut the arguments of the collectivists. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Well, and again, though, I will say, much like in the last chapter, he says that, but then he does at numerous places throw in remarks about the merits of what he would term collectivism, which is the, the dumbest stretch of this chapter. Yeah, right? I mean, they're, they're just snarky remarks, though. There's nothing, you know, this is like, oh, who'd ever pithy. believe that? Yeah. 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 And I mean, he also spends a good part of this page explaining why he only looked at the textbooks for the introductory course which we talked about in the last chapter, there was, you know, he looked at a lot of the textbooks for some classes or some areas, and then there was that one where he just spent a good page explaining that, eh, it's okay that I didn't do all the work and only yeah. looked at the introductory books. He does that again here. It's just oh, yeah. explaining away his own failures. Yeah, and he's like, I also don't care who's right and who's wrong, but I care what the alumni of Yale want taught yes. at Yale. Yes. Like, who cares, what, who cares what the <laughs> alumni of Yale want taught at Yale? I have absolutely no pretension to, to think, like, what should be taught at my former university. Like, I am not, you know, I'm five years removed from yep. the university. Who gives a shit? Like, especially if it's not my no, major. I, I like, if it's my major, if it was something I majored in, and I'm like, oh, I think they should still teach this. Maybe well, I, you look, would write I, to I the think... department and be like, I did a master's in this. I think you should still teach that. Maybe. I have absolutely no reason at all to care what the economics professors are teaching in a class that I didn't take. Well, I think I can see myself getting angry if uh, UC Berkeley were to hire Charles Murray and start teaching that black people have lower IQs because of genetics. I can see myself having a problem with that and maybe doing something as an alumni on that accord. But this is just, it's the dumbest thing to complain about. And also, yeah. I mean, we're not just talking about alumni. The books he's talking about here are, are ones that were used when he was at Yale. So yeah. it goes a little bit beyond just like looking. Yeah, back so he's just and... he's just trying to snitch is what's happening. Yeah, really, what it is. I mean, come on, we know we we've seen fucking Turning Point USA taking his baton and having their whole snitch website for mm-hmm. for to give professors death threats. You know, it's what they do. But he says about that alumni thing, quote, If, after digesting this section or pursuing a personal investigation, the alumnus finds himself in accord with the values that are being fostered at his college, I have nothing more to say to him, unless, of course, I find him someday lamenting the collectivist drift of our governments. That's, 
Buckley thinks that's a great comeback. Oh, yeah. He thinks that's a great way to say, I know many people don't care about what I have to say here, but they might someday. Yeah. It's always it's always that, well, you will care. It's what your parents told you as a oh, kid. Oh, when, when you have to pay taxes, you'll care. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's absolutely that. <laughs> it's absolutely... Coming from a 25... He was younger than us when he wrote this book. Yeah. He was 25 years old. I can just imagine what a dink he looked like as <laughs> he was the, the one time he ever read this book out loud to anyone. Yeah. Probably he also... <laughs> the only he also who would sit and listen to it. Well, yeah, maybe. He also, which is very funny, um, is like, uh, so about a tenth of people take this class. Oh, sorry, a third of a third of the a third of the average class take this economics ten class that he's complaining yeah. about, and only a tenth of those go on to major in economics. So that the the one third is three hundred and fifty students. So only thirty five students per year are majoring in economics at Yale. But, but at this remember, point. Benedict, if any graduate of Yale was ever to be an individualist or a pioneer is because they managed to overcome how this class yeah. destroyed their individualism that's Absolutely. what we learn Absolutely. so he starts off he tells us what textbooks he's going to be complaining about in this chapter and there are i think there are either three or four of them i don't remember I don't oh just One, before two, we three, get to that can you explain this sentence to me sure so he says a professional so at the top of page 44 yeah Mm-hmm. So he says, a professional socialist is as competent as a classicist to explain the price system, the laws of supply and demand, the cost curves of the business firm, and the myriad details and background knowledge that must mm-hmm. serve as the basis for any well-conceived course in economics. Yeah. So, but he then goes on to say that the textbooks do the job well enough. So is he saying that socialists can or can't do that? I read it as can't. He, he says that they can. What he's getting across there, and I think it's, it's but a is couple a, sentences is a classic is a classicist competent to explain that stuff? I just, I don't <laughs> No, understand. I think what he means by classicist is oh, a classical economist. Class- yes. Oh, I see, I see. You know, okay. in other words, wrong. That is uh, not you know, that is not clear at all. No, no, writing. it's it's not. It's not. <laughs> but yeah, what he's getting at there is uh, anybody can teach an introductory class, right? You know, if you have these higher yeah. level disagreements about these things, you can still go in and talk about the. You know, you can put up the chart on the the board and talk about yeah. this is what the supply curve gotcha, is, this is the gotcha. demand curve. This is all the stuff we teach first years, right? Gotcha. So and also, I mean, Marx is one of the most incisive writers on capitalism that has ever written on capitalism. So. Whatever. I don't think Buckley has read Marx. I don't think Buckley has read Marx based off of uh, several comments that he's mm-hmm. made. I mean, we skipped over it, but a page or two ago, he said that, uh, you know, there aren't really any outgoing Marxists at Yale who want to destroy the, the current system. What there actually are are people who just want a slow increase of state power over time mm-hmm. through extended social services. Oh, tax yeah, which he says is Marx's Which he says is Marx's option. second plan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Show me where, buddy. Uh, luckily, there's no citation there for me to look up yep. uh, and try and figure out what he's there's referring no, to. Just capital is not. Let's yeah. increase the power of the petty bourgeoisie. <laughs> you know how workers of the world would unite under that? There was a subscript that said slowly over a period of many decades through <laughs> gradually increasing social services That's and right. taxation. Yep. That's what it said. Yep, uh, yep, so yep. the books he's going to be talking about, there are several of them. One, Economic Analysis and Public Policy by Mary Jean Bowman and George Leland Bach. And I would like to say at the, at the outset, he's basically going to be accusing all of these authors and their books of being 
you know, pink commies. Yes, yeah, they all soft, are soft comms. It's what right? these people soft. all are. Um, they, and of course, I looked these people up. Most of these people who wrote these textbooks are people who had very established careers in economics. They taught which at prestigious also, universities. They, they talk about in the introductions to their books, which he quotes and is like, I am yeah. not a fan of socialism. Like, but do we trust them? No, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, and like only one of them, um, the only person who I could find even anything about, you know, being accused of socialism uh, was, I think, the guy who wrote uh, Income and Employment, Theodore Morgan, or maybe... Uh, maybe I just have them mixed up. I think maybe it was Elements of Economics. Laurie Tarshish, um, okay. who, like the McCarthy Committee, had accused him of being sympathetic to socialism or some shit like that. Yeah, and the McCarthy Committee accused everyone of being sympathetic yeah. to socialism. And in the end, like a bunch of his colleagues came to his defense. It was like, fuck you, people. He's an economist. He's just writing about the way the world is from his perspective. Yeah. There's nothing socialist about what he's doing. And everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll leave him alone because he's. Well, I mean, Buckley's, Buckley's biggest complaint in this is that the economists acknowledge that the New Deal happened. Yes, like <laughs> yes, I know. It is. Uh, but so uh, Mary Jean Bowman, she's the writer of the first textbook. I found interesting uh, that she resigned from her post. I think she was at the University of Iowa or something like that. Uh, she resigned there after a controversy where the butter manufacturers had tried to get the entire staff to endorse butter being healthier than margarine. So <laughs> I thought that okay. was funny. Uh, she that showed a little funny. bit of that, you know, a little bit of uh, um, uh, a backbone and, and bucked the big butter people, I guess. It was fun. I guess, the big, uh, big butter boys. Yeah. The next one we get uh, is The Elements of Economics by Laurie Tarshish. I've talked about him already. Income and Employment by Theodore Morgan, just another prestigious professor. And then the last one, I think the one he probably talks about the most, uh, Paul Samuelson's Economics and Introductory Analysis. So those are the four books he's going to be complaining out through the rest of this chapter. Uh, and like you said, yes, uh, after that, he does mention that basically all these people in their introductions say – you know, we're not socialists. Um, we generally prefer capitalism and freedom and all this stuff. And he says, basically, well, but do they? Yeah. Who are they <laughs> to define their own beliefs? <laughs> I know. It is. That's basically how he's leading into the rest of the chapter. So this is broken up uh, in some places into subsections with headings, which I do appreciate whenever our authors do that. Uh, it's very annoying for me when they don't because it's hard for me mm -hmm. to figure out how we're going to break things up. But the first subsection here is just entitled, These Are Changing Times. Got to be are. fair, in 1950, yeah, they were changing times. The times um, they were are changing. Bob Dylan even wrote about it. <laughs> and basically, he's just snarkily and sarcastically cutting out portions of these textbooks where those authors very accurately point out that in 1950, the times they are a changing. Right? Mm -hmm. That's basically, he wants to be like, change. What is change? <laughs> yeah. His main complaint. He says, quote, After all, write Bowman and Bach, 19th century individualism, in its dot, 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 I have to point out the number of ellipses because... Lots of ellipses. I was not able to look up these textbooks from which he's quoting. Um, they're old. There are many editions. Some of them, like, they're, they're in print under the same name but haven't been entirely rewritten by different authors. So I wasn't able to find any of them. I have to assume that he's being deceptive with a lot of what he's doing here because there's a shitload of ellipses uh, and taking one sentence, clipping it together with another sentence, which he does indicate is from like a different page of the book. 
So he's at least being honest enough about that, but he's not giving the surrounding context. He's not telling us, you know, the full story, I have to imagine. Mm -hmm. But he says, quote, 19th century individualism, dot, 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 in its extreme form is as impractical of application as the philosophy of totalitarianism. There are four different quotes in there clipped together mm -hmm. to make that one sentence. They are all from page 346, he tells us. I'm unable to verify any of that. He then says, Samuelson tells the student that, and this is a quote from Samuelson's book, a cynic might say of free competition what Bernard Shaw once said of Christianity. The only trouble with it is that it has never been tried. There never was a golden age of free competition, and competition is not now perfect in the economist sense. Probably it is becoming less so every day, in large part because of the fundamental nature of large-scale production and technology, consumers' tastes, and business organization. And that's just a great point. Yeah. That's just a good point that he's bringing up there. It's what that problem we get with a lot of conservative authors where they think they have a great comeback to a great point by somebody else. So they put the the you know the point in in its entirety in the original and then and then just sort of that point resonates way more. Let out a wet fart and think they've countered it. Well that happens with the next one as well, where he like anticipates the counter argument against yeah. the the next point where uh, is it Brahman and Bach that say basically that like individualism is on the decline and that collectivism and, and larger government yeah. safety nets are, are on they, the up? They actually point out that sort of this rugged individualism uh, of the pioneer quality just doesn't exist anymore because the world has changed. Yeah, and, and live the, in a vastly different world. He adds the italics that say mm -hmm. Buckley adds the italics that say. The direction of movement in recent decades in America is clearly further away from the extreme of atomistic individualism and in the direction of increased central planning of the economic life of the country. Fundamentally true, Buckley yeah. thinks this is a gotcha and then says, it may be interjected that after all, it is a historical fact that we are moving away from individualism and towards central planning and that Bauman and Bach have done nothing, nothing more than chronicle this changing emphasis. Yes, that is literally the counterpoint to yeah. everything you're about to say. And it is correct. That is exactly what has happened there. Yes, but then this he, is he said written in 1949, this textbook off the back of the New Deal. Yeah, and basically his response to what they have to say, a sentence or two down from what you read, is, well, is it desirable that that's the case? It doesn't matter. It's true. Yeah, well, and I would also say, you know, with the benefit of 70 years of hindsight from when he wrote this, yes, in general, yes, it has been yep. economically desirable. We have a much better world now under the system that Brown and Bowman have described than we would under the fucking paleoconservative Ludwig von Mies... Uh, hellscape that William F. Buckley would prefer. So he says next, quote, Bowman and Bach's palliatives are mild by comparison with some of their brethren textbook writers who have molded the attitudes of so many students. Professor Tarshish, for one, comes right out and says it. Quote from Tarshish now in that textbook. We must be prepared to accept new ways of doing things as well as old for the problems we face are new and alarming. That quote, by the way, comes from page 686. I have to assume near the end of the textbook. And that sounds like sort of filler language. It's just like, well, you're about to finish this textbook. Yeah, we got to be prepared for a new world, do new stuff. That's what that sounds like. He then clips that together with a quote from page 54, which is, quote, as the nature of our economy has changed, and as the problems that it has been compelled to face have altered and grown in gravity, we have been compelled to call upon the government. Cool. Yeah. Cool. 
He clipped together two pages separated by, or two quotes, two sentences, separated by 600 pages. And that's his argument against... Yeah, and the, he leads guy. it with the later quote, which is a weird... It's a weird yeah, stitching. Yeah, it is weird. It's but, you know, I, I did... This is around the point that I started to realize that this Buckleyite ideology that he's putting forward here, um, this is... I mean, we are familiar with this way of thinking. And it's not because Buckley's ideals have held through from the 1950s to now. It's because this is that paleoconservatism that re-emerged under Reagan and then, uh, you know, the Bush years. And, you know, it's, it's what's probably the primary ideology now. The, you know, wannabe pseudo-libertarians who don't really know what libertarianism is. Uh, you know, the, the Glenn Becks of the world. These people all hold this sort of paleoconservative ideology. And they, like Buckley, idolize Ludwig von Mies, uh-huh. who we will be talking, who Buckley yeah, does will. reference here in yeah, this he book. Yeah, he does. Yeah, you see, you, you didn't believe me before when I've told you in the past we need to talk about the von Mies Institute and Ludwig von Mies because it is that important to right-wing thought. It is, uh, yeah. This sort of no, you were right. rejection of thinking <laughs> in favor of whatever the fuck it is that Ludwig von Mies puts forward mm-hmm. into the world. So he continues on. He has a co- I can't read every time he puts in a quote from one of these books because we'd just be here forever because that's what so much of this is, is just him filling pages with paragraphs and, you know, mostly clipped together, pulled from all of these books. That's what the majority of it is. So we're going to skip forward. He has a quote in here from, I think this is from Bowman and Bach. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about big business. And how individualism and this sort of the rise of big business cuts against this individualist idea that people of uh, uh, William Buckley's ilk would put forward. And then he says, after that quote, This is in part true, but it is a special pleading nevertheless, heavily slanted and unbalanced. When the the sentence before basically was talking about, um, well, basically what, what it's talking about is, you know, the, the American economy and philosophy is rewarding the strong for destroying the weak, that sort of thing. Uh, and he calls that a special pleading. He's, again, there's another thing that ties him with the modern conservatives, which is this sort of love of, uh, you know, we get this from Ben Shapiro and the like of him, uh, this sort of love of using uh, formal economic fallacies and the language mm-hmm. of philosophy in debating and argumentation. You know, that's not an argument. Uh, Stefan Molyneux. Yeah. Uh, sort of his catchphrase and those sort of dick bags. Um, but special pleading is a logical fallacy, uh, basically, of say- citing the exception to a rule uh, while ignoring the general principle or more broadly in ignoring arguments that are counter to your beliefs. But mm-hmm. he doesn't really present a good argument that that's not the <laughs> that's rule. not an argument yeah he says about the argument that you know big business is destroying the ability for small businesses to exist and all this that and the other by saying quote it is nowhere recorded that the 19th century was one of unparalleled production of goods and services he's saying that that's what bowman and bach have left out uh, we are not told of the mammoth increases of the capital structure of the country and how it was built out of wilderness. Nothing is said of the growth of a world of little capitalists, the grocer, the dress manufacturer, the newspaper owner. The newspaper owner? Yep. A little, little capitalist. capitalist? 
Okay. The farmer. All the millions who attained ratings in Dun and Bradstreet. Nothing of the log cabin that blossomed out into a 17-room house with hot and cold running water and a garage. No tribute is paid to the support of the weak that is an automatic result of the free enterprise system because no one can bring prosperity to himself without bringing it to others. Okay. Whoo, boy. Whoo, That's boy. That's a whole lot of horseshit to work with. No one can yep. bring prosperity to himself without bringing it to the others. Um, you know, there's some guys who sold their soul at the company store I'd like you to talk to. But, you know, all this stuff, it, it the 17-room log cabin with hot and cold water did make me laugh a little bit. That much I had to stop and be like, okay. Okay. Tell, show me. Show me the person who started with the log cabin and now has the 17-room house. Uh, and, you know, he's probably someone who has trampled all over a lot of other people uh, in getting that. Probably, yeah, house. that seems right. But also, a lot of what he's talked about there, the you know, increase in the abilities of these people to have better lives, certainly he's sitting there in 1950, post-New Deal, post-World War II economic boom caused by massive government spending, and he's saying that all of these things have come out of purely individual efforts with no government imp- it just doesn't make sense no it just seriously doesn't make any sense so we skip to the next subsection now which is titled unfair distribution of income and i was to be honest a little surprised that back in the 1950s um anyone was talking about that who wasn't a marxist <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I remember that the income tax levels were huge in the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely massive. But, you know, and this is probably one of those things where uh, if you mention this at all, people like Buckley will scream that you're a socialist, even mm-hmm. though it's just a reality of the world. And people who aren't socialists or communists can talk about unfair distribution of income and the problems of the way a system is set up, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah. of course, Buckley is going to say that anyone who, who talks about it or brings it up or mentions that it exists or is a problem is a socialist. Because in his paleoconservative world, there is no such thing as an unfair distribution of income. All those people who don't have money, well, <laughs> it's because they're lazy or because the market decided that they shouldn't have higher income. Whatever the case might be, whatever bullshit argument, he didn't, he never really gives us uh, a counter argument to the unfair distribution of income people in this chapter. He just yeah. sort of assumes that we will all agree that they're a bunch of commies and that they're they're dumb dumbs. Yeah. Sort the ne- the next few it. the next few pages for me also are just filled with me being like, is this wrong? This seems right to to all the to all the quotes that he pulls. I mean, I have to assume that uh, you know William F. Buckley, if he were to watch the movie Wall Street, probably agreed with the greed is good speech. Yeah. I really have to assume uh, that movie came out when he was alive, so he might have seen sure. it. Yeah. Uh, he probably agreed with it. I can't imagine him disagreeing with Gordon Gecko on basically any points because no. unlike the the more modern conservatives, even the more modern paleoconservatives, the Glenn Becks and the like, um, the, Glenn Beck will say that you know there are evil big corporations, and you know they a lot of times these are in service to their arguments against whoever their boogeyman, you know Twitter, Twitter mm-hmm. and Facebook and and YouTube and whatever that these arguments don't exist because they actually believe in the principles. They exist because they're convenient to their arguments against these, against these big companies and whatnot. Uh-huh. But Buckley, as we will see a little bit throughout this chapter, is sort of an unabashed pro-monopolist, pro-big-business-ite, you know? He's sort of that old-school, uh, 
Republican ideal of, of you know, uh, it's all about uh, the market. And if you do anything, if you even talk badly about corporations, you're a commie. Mm-hmm. That's sort of where he comes from on this. So he doesn't have a ton to say. Again, it's a lot of clipping out. Uh, like I have to keep pointing out these distorted citations. There are so many ellipses that jump from a uh, quote on page X to a quote on page Y, uh, or in the middle of one quote from a single page. There's one right here, two different sets of ellipses from one quote on one page. He's, he's doing this thing. It always makes me worry because I've seen the way these people, a lot of the authors we've read, that they will, you know, use this to distort things and to lie about what someone else is saying. So I'm always suspicious when they do these sorts of things. There is but- a there is a very funny bit though when he's like he 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 says that that in the textbooks they make assertions like most Americans insist on this. Uh, and then he says, mm. no proof of any kind is given to the fact that, that most Americans insist yes. on this. Oh, really? Do you expect people to back up their arguments, William F. Buckley? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Apparently it's well, fine as long as you tell people you're not going to do that beforehand. Well, but his sort of counter to that is, he says, even if such proof were available, continuing with his quote, quote, the authors of these textbooks in basic economics refuse to address themselves to the question, is what most Americans want sound economics? But here's my problem with that. His idea of what sound economics is, is what most Americans want. Because his nonsensical idea of what a free market is, is simply individuals making decisions. In other words, what Americans want Doesn't is matter. good economics. Yeah. You know, you have to go back to that. He continues skipping a little further down. He has a dumb, 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 And I am a little bit charmed by, you know, just the old time. The Joe DiMaggio. The Joe DiMaggio bit. Yes, he says, quote, not one of them, referring to the textbook writers, mentions contrary observations by highly reputable economists. I'm assuming he means, you know, Ludwig von Mies. Not one of them so much as pays lip service to the highly respectable doctrine that it is anti-democratic to take from someone what the people, in the first instance, decided to give him. If several hundred thousand people acting without coercion of any description elect to pay Joe DiMaggio a hundred thousand dollars a year for the privilege of seeing him at bat, and of course in a free economy it is the people who, in their role as ultimate employers, pay the wages, and the government promptly turns around and absorbs the greater part of this sum, who is thwarting the most directly expressed will of the people? And you know, I have to say, I like I my eyes glazed over at this example, and I didn't even yes. try to understand what he was talking. About. Well, this often happens are, to me with economics and people do hypotheticals are, and i'm just like i literally don't right. care well because there are so many levels of gross oversimplification within that example right the whole thing about the people being the ultimate employers that ignores the very real reality of how employment actually works yep. and that you're you know contracts are not signed with the people who pay ticket prices at uh, a yankees game uh, they're signed with the owner of the yankees mm-hmm. who is the person who's taking off the gross amount the larger who, amount yeah. of money who and is who making thinks, more than joe dimaggio that's that's the thing like here is how much i think i can pay you and still extract yes. value from your labor 
Yes, exactly. It's it's ignoring all Marxism, of, baby. There are a bunch of, uh, but also right. It goes back to what I argued before, which is that uh, you know is what most Americans want sound economics. Well, you know, Does, you sort of you seem to think it is, yeah, yeah, and saying yeah, you do think it is. So we get yeah. To the so next so who cares if people vote at the polls or vote with their purchases or vote with their wallets? Like it shouldn't matter. Exactly. It's the same thing. Well, and and it goes back to something that uh, I think he does touch on a little bit. I don't know if we've gone past it or not, but the the idea of voting with your wallets. Um, one of these textbook authors makes the very valid point that uh, if we looked at it as uh, sort of similar or compared it to democracy or how that works, uh, people are given unequal voting power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people get hundred votes. Some, I think I think it's later. I think he's when he's talking yeah. about Keynes, he talks about that. Yeah. So the next subsection we get to is entitled the income tax, in which uh, he he just runs through the, the next few <laughs> sections are just him running through why taxes he thinks are bad. Yeah, um, yeah. So in- uh, he does it with income. He does it with inheritance. Yeah, and so his argument against the income ta- he you know has this straw man version of what the income tax should be. Remember, it was much higher in nineteen fifty. So much higher. The top income brackets, right? It was it was much much higher than it is now. It was uh, up to the- it was up to ninety five percent for the top income brackets. Yeah, and uh, these economists point out that as long as there is some sort of gains to be realized after taxes, there's not much evidence that uh, there's any reduction of productivity. Uh, for people who you know are already in those highest tax bracket tax brackets because they still want that extra they can get even though their tax rate is higher mm-hmm. on that higher amount of income and he countering that says quote this is an important argument of the socialist and it is seen applied in Russia where stakhanovite medals decorations extra ration cards and the like have been presented to deserving workers Dude, in lieu what? of additional income with diminishing success <laughs> he's comparing Someone worth $20 million only getting, you know, $50,000 uh, after taxes on their extra million dollars worth of income as the same as, oh, in Soviet Russia, you get extra ration card because you showed up at work early five minutes every day for last month. Uh-huh. You know, it's that level of bullshit. Yeah. It's... But really, it's, you know, trying to, it, it is trying to compare the wealthy American businessman to the Russian peasant under Stalinist rule. It's just really fucking pathetic. Really, really fucking pathetic. Yep. But we get the next subsection, which is entitled the inheritance tax. Which is, I think, where he he just fundamentally misunderstands a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Um, and he... Well, I would also say... He doesn't have much in the way of rebuttal to what these people are saying, other than what I think he's done a lot, which is just sort of stand there sarcastically and say, look at these idiots. Yeah. Right? That's basically really all he has there. But right, the the point he makes about the inheritance tax is that the writers of these textbooks point out that there isn't a lot of economic advantage to an inheritance tax because uh, – and I don't know if I would necessarily just agree with that given what well, we've seen. Well, I, I, think, I think what – uh, what they're saying, and I think he presents it out of context, mm-hmm. is it's not good for uh, planned economies because it's an in it's a it's an unpredictable source of income, yeah. right? So I think I think that's their argument of like you can't you can't use it to plan centrally because you don't know when that revenue is going to come good, um, yeah. and then he's taken that to mean there is no economic utility for the state to have to have an inheritance tax right which is so i don't he, think what they're saying 
So what he focuses on instead is that these writers of textbooks do say that the point, one of the, the major provable goods of an inheritance tax is the ability to use it to reduce economic inequality and income inequality and, you know, differences of wealth, that sort uh -huh. of thing. To which, of course, we know he says, oh, pshaw, <laughs> pshaw economic pshaw. inequality is good because greed is good. Yeah. I, I keep... I keep thinking of him as Gordon Gecko. I can't, I can't get over it. But he finishes the section after, again, it's a bunch of quotes taken out of these textbooks with maybe a sentence in between, going to the next one. It's really annoying the way he does this. But he finishes the section saying, quote, In other words, there is little or no economic value attached to such confiscation. It simply advances the social welfare, in scare quotes, as these economists, in scare quotes, define social welfare. That social welfare for them, as for all collectivists, is egalitarianism. Just dripping sure. with... And, and you know, I will admit that I am putting my own idea of what Buckley, uh, how he would read it, the inflection he would use, but I think I'm pretty close to yeah, how he would actually that. be, or the way he thought when he was writing those words. So we get to the next subsection, which is titled Private Property Rights. And this is, I would say, this entire section is just bullshit fear-mongering because none of these people are arguing to get rid of private property rights in the way that, you know, the Marxist uh, system would work or, you know, anything re even remotely close to it. It just goes back to that old, really, taxes are theft. It's yeah. just taxation is theft yep, is really what he's screeching here. Yeah, and he says, uh, he, he pulls out one of these quotes. This is from Morgan, uh, and it is, quote, Probably majority opinion agrees with our own national policy that the right of a man to engage in business for himself is not a basic freedom, like freedom from fear, want, freedom of speech, and worship. They love to decide it, arbitrarily which freedoms are, are real freedoms. Yeah, yeah. Continuing, it is a right which only about one in five of our working force finds him able or finds it worthwhile to accept. So... Buckley is enraged by that quote, enraged by the fact that someone is pointing out that, uh, for, for one thing, I should note just off the bat, uh, as an attorney, uh, do not take legal advice from a podcast, but uh, there is no such thing as a right to engage in business. There's, there's no such, such thing yeah. that doesn't make sense. Uh, in general, you know, we have freedom of association, all these other things, but the way Buckley is pretending that it is the same, and I think that author is making the point of comparing it to things like freedom of speech and freedom of worship. Uh, they're pointing out that it's not available in the same ways as those other things because people can't actualize. They can't actually obtain um, uh, use of this freedom in the way that anyone can obtain freedom of worship, freedom of speech, etc., uh, and also, I think that that author does point at freedom from fear or want, going back to the New Deal type stuff. But Buckley is mad, and he says, following that, quote, It seems, then, that the volume of indulgence in any given freedom is a relevant factor in determining whether or not it is properly a basic freedom. If, that is to say, only one of five persons goes into business for himself, then the right of man to engage in business for himself this is, is such, not basic. Uh, this is such, like... <laughs> dog roll. honestly like this is so like well what if there was a one-armed man and everyone has the right to bear arms and he can only bear one arm like what the fuck are you talking about he can hold uh, another one in his mouth he can have a second gun in his mouth 
and pull the trigger with his tongue. It's, and that's how it's we're gonna dis- solve that this is disgusting. This whole this but whole yes, section. He does say one out of tens of thousands of men chooses to go into public and make a speech. Therefore, freedom to address assemblies is not basic. Only one out of a hundred thousand decides to start a newspaper. What happens to the freedom of the press? It's so stupid. It really is his him intentionally misunderstanding what the previous author was saying. Uh, about what that means, the right to to engage in business or whatever, right? He's, he's just intentionally not understanding what that person was saying. So we get to the next subsection, which is entitled Production and Employment, Responsibilities of the State. And this is where he really gets into complaining about Keynesian economics for the most part. This is what I think the, the first rest time of he this, really yeah, says Yeah, this the is word. the first time he, he brings up Keynes, yeah. Yes. And so now he's going to be complaining about Keynes uh, and the fact Again, looking back with 70 years of hindsight, we just know that, yeah, Bucks, um, your ideas did not do as well as the next 70 years of generally Keynesian-ish or Keynesian-adjacent economics Neo-Keynesian, did. yeah. Yeah, in the United States of producing, you know, the, the massive growth from the 50s up until now, which far outpaces anything that came before it previously. Uh, so, you know, I could just say that, but we've got to actually deal with the bullshit that Buckley's saying because we promised we would. So he says, quote, The individualist counter-Keynesian theory that an untrammeled free market, mobile wage rates, and decentralized non-political credit policies can in the long run cope with economic fluctuations far more efficaciously than can the government and with far fewer ill effects, if mentioned at all, is scorned. And maybe that's because you just went through the Great Depression where those things didn't work. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a, a possibility, <laughs> Famously right? Famously did not work. <laughs> Continues, quote. Uh, actually, now he, he's, he's not continuing. He's quoting from Bounds and Bowman. And he says, quote, To set the responsibility for attaining and maintaining full employment on the shoulders of individual consumers or individual businessmen is absurd. That's from page 169 of one of these books. I've lost track of exactly which textbook he's quoting at one yeah. point. But that's just correct. I mean... Yeah. That really is, I don't know how you argue against that. And again, he doesn't. He no. doesn't really argue against it. He just scoffs and says, ha, fools. That's it. That's all he's got for that. It's it's really sort of dumb. And what he goes to is comparing it to Russia. And he points out a paragraph. Always. That's his go-to. Let's compare it to Russia. Well, he points out a paragraph in one of these books, which is making the comparison between a centralized planned economy in Russia or wherever and the United States. And they're not, in this paragraph, endorsing Russia or Soviet communism. They're just pointing out the differences between how a planned economy can deal with problem X versus how an unplanned economy or a free market economy would deal with problem X. And... Really, it's just him scaremongering and trying to convince the reader that, in fact, they are in favor of Soviet communism because they didn't spend the majority of that paragraph condemning condemning Marxism and communism and all that. They just, you know, give an overview of how these two systems work different from each other. Uh It's, It's really what it is. But, he says, quote, The individual firm, the individual himself, is powerless to cope with the complexities of the economy in times of stress. The government must step in. For the government, as Bowman and Bach point out, has four unique powers. And these unique powers 
Uh, we don't need to go over them in depth, but basically the power to regulate, the power of compulsion, uh, the the ability to provide goods and services that are desired but mm-hmm. not marketable under a market system, and these sort of things, they're, they're just generally true. Yeah. And I think the little areas where we do see him making argument throughout the rest of this chapter is just him completely overlooking or, or scoffing at and avoiding the fact that those are realities mm-hmm. of the system. It's sort of like we saw, I think, I don't remember when, but I, re- I recall sort of vaguely Glenn Beck scoffing at the argument that what makes the, uh, you know, the, the difference between uh, his ideal free market bullshit world and the way the world actually works and the U.S. monetary system is that the government can print more money. Yeah. And so that that does make a difference in how these systems work. And he just sort of scoffs at that because he assumes that, well, that's just bad. So we should yeah, never it's, print it, it, more it's money. It's like, oh, and people think that the state has the monopoly on <laughs> violence. Like, as if I can't yes. do, I, as if I don't have a gun. Well, like, I own well, yeah. guns. So clearly they don't have a full monopoly. <laughs> like, they don't understand how that works. Like they, they don't understand what the phrases they're talking about really mean. And they ascribe, no. because they're coming at it from their jaded perspective, that's, you know, tempered by their own ideals and beliefs. Like I've talked about before, why college Republicans are bad at school. Everything, right? yep. Uh, they're unable to set aside their own beliefs and just recognize realities. Uh-huh. Uh, they're unable to, to, uh, to approach these things without their own biases intact. But it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just, it's just boring. Um, but... There's a little note there about, you know, uh, one of the textbooks mentioning why uh, things didn't work in the 30s uh, as fast as they did until World War II came about. And he just sort of sarcastically notes that because it was too little, too late. But again, he doesn't do it uh, as, I think maybe he's smarter than Glenn Beck. And so he didn't do as Glenn Beck said, where Glenn Beck just literally wrote that it was actually World War II. And the, yeah. Uh, what, do, of what do you think happened there, my my guy? That ended. Uh, yeah, he doesn't say it, but it's really implied there in what he's saying. So we get to the next subsection, Benedict, yep. which is titled "No Limit to Government Spending." Oh, uh, this bit's fun. And here he starts off going back to that old chestnut of conservatives, uh, complaining, and he actually only does it by implication. He doesn't say it explicitly, but complaining that we're no longer on the gold standard. Yeah. Always about gold. I wonder if there was some sort of gold sales racket involved in this book, as every conservative Maybe. in the modern ecosphere has. I would wonder. I have to imagine at some point National Review got involved in some sort of gold sales racket as an advertiser or or something oh, along those lines. Everything was advertised back in the day. I have to imagine. I, I would really love to find out. Maybe I'll have to go look at their archives or something. Uh, but uh, this is the part... They don't have them. They don't have digitized archives, famously. No, no, I'll have to go to the library. But this is the part where we have a giant block underneath the first paragraph of the page, which is a screed of angry nonsense that starts with, Professor Ludwig von Mies retorted. <laughs> it's just... Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, he, well, he's. Um, he, I mean, his his whole thing here is like some economists don't agree with with Keynes. Like, yeah, that's fine. You're allowed academic disagreements, right? Also, uh, 
Von Mies should not be your go-to guy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Von Mies was a very bad man, uh, and the people who like him very much are very bad people. Uh, and we're going to – I mentioned before, and I'll, I'll mention again, we are at some point going to be doing, uh, you know, an interstitial on Von Mies. And maybe it'll be two episodes. It might have to be one on Von Mies, one on the Von Mies Institute. I don't know how I'll do it, how I'll structure it, but we're going to have to talk about it because he is the god of paleoconservatism. They all go back. I mean, he was dead at the point they created the Von Mies Institute, but they named it after him because they're dumb and they needed a dumb god to pray to. So, like, that's where it comes from. Um, Uh Uh-huh. But basically the thrust throughout this section of the chapter is, well, the Keynesians all think you can just spend all you want with no problems. Mm-hmm. And it uh, goes back to this quote that he keeps bringing up a couple times that, quote, the basic truth that money is the servant and tool of the economy and not its master, which is a quote he took from one of the textbooks which he's quoting throughout this chapter. And, uh, you know, I think I would generally agree with that comment that money is the servant of the economy and not yeah. its master. I think yeah. we see here one of the big differences between Buckley and everyone else, where Buckley thinks that the economy exists to serve money not the other way around. Uh-huh. I think that's. I think that's one of the big. We can, we can recognize one of the big differences between him and the rest of sane people. Yeah. No. I. I it's. I, th- this whole bit is just like. It's just anti-government spending, and I, again, they point out like the authors point out. Hey, isn't it better if the government goes into debt than if you personally right. go into debt? Because right. someone's going into debt, and if it's the government, we can handle that. You are going to go bankrupt, my dude. Like. <laughs> Right, because what it's talking about there, that point you were just uh, mentioning, is when there are, you know, large crises. And particularly, obviously, this is 1950, shortly after the Great Depression, World War II, blah, blah, blah. We've said it a ton of times. That's what they're referencing there. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it dur- did turn out to be much better to put that debt on the hands of the, the government, who can, of course, you know, survive much longer with that debt and not lose everything and not have uh, adverse consequences. Well, generally also not have to have to repay the debt really in in like a you know there's there's a they have a much greater negotiating power as a government than than the private individual does with a lender but i should also note that buckley has this weird view of how that works that he puts out a couple of pages here uh and again with 70 years of hindsight in the fact that this never happened buckley sort of postulates that what the keynesians really want is a system where, for example, from World War II, they issue 50 billions in war bonds. Mm-hmm. And then, when those bonds come due and people come to cash them in, they just pass a law that taxes revenue from bonds at the same exact amount of the bonds that would be paid, so then they end up not paying them. They just pay the money out, and it comes right back in in the form of taxes. Which, I mean never happened and would be dumb and would be such an outcry that the political consequences of doing that would be devastating. And so that's probably why it would never happen. Um, But it's just one of those weird things like Buckley's got to come up with a way to explain why this is all actually evil to issue debt in the form of bonds. And that's the best he can come up with. And that's that's pretty bad. It's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, it's not good. It's, it's he, also just this super convoluted, like, what if, hypothetically, yeah. I owed you some money, and then you were like, ugh, never mind, whatever, but also, I'm going to expect payment in Amazon gift cards. Like, what <laughs> What are you talking about? Absolutely well, yeah, and he bizarre. also, he, 
He also compares it in this little fantasy he's worked up here to how the, the government can do that to the citizens of its own country, but it can't do it to foreign holders of that debt. Yeah, so, so foreign, this is all... you're treating your citizens worse than the foreigners, which is yeah, a classic, so classic right-wing trope. And it would siphon money away from the U.S. and give it to those foreigners and blah, blah, blah. It's just this weird straw man that obviously we can see looking back never happened of what yeah. they want. It's always fun when you look back at this shit and you're like, that's not right. <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah. And when the next thing he gets into is a little bit of fear mongering over inflation, which we all know is also another conservative boogeyman. They yep. always screech about inflation every single I mean, right now they're screeching about inflation. And yes, inflation can have problems. It can cause issues for society, but it is part of our economic reality and has been even when we were on the gold standard. Yep. There was still inflation going on. It's not a new thing. It's not an old thing. It's just been around forever because that's how everything works. So, but the, the thing I loved about his little going off on inflation here um, is this, uh, I don't know how to describe it, weird paragraph, th probably the most out of touch thing anyone could possibly write. It's a, <laughs> it's a footnote on the page, and it says, quote, it is ironic that this debonair attitude about inflation has come home to roost. The purchasing power of the 1932 dollar now wavers at 40 cents. If Yale's capital funds, a substantial portion of which are invested in fixed income bearing securities, had kept pace with inflation, they would today be worth well over 275 million and yield at prevailing returns 12 million 375 thousand dollars yearly. Mm -hmm. Instead, the university must struggle along with a hundred $141 million endowment with its $5,038,000 yeah. Extremely out of touch. Love this that. has necessitated drastic educational curtailments and savants desperate attempts to the alumni who are, it seems, to make up the difference and to continue to support Yale's economic professors and texts in their cries for more and more inflation. What? Yeah. A dick. <laughs> Douchebag. What a dick. Oh, we have to struggle along with struggle 140 along with million. Struggle along with 140 million. Oh, yeah. All right. How we struggle at Yale with our millions upon millions. Oh, we weren't able to have five butlers in the dorm room. We only had to have four this year. What assholes. Yeah. No, God. thank you. <laughs> so no, the thank final you. subsection. The final subsection, Benedict, that we get to is entitled. Big business and monopoly. Yep. And here, he plays basically the same game we have seen from Glenn Beck and all the other paleoconservatives who we have read, where he says at the very beginning, well, I mean, monopolies are sort of bad, and then goes on to just support a system which would create more Create more, more monopolies. monopolies. I like Samuelson's description of, uh, of what monopolies aren't a fat yes, greedy man yes. with a big mustache and cigar who goes around violating the law that's not what monopolies are good well good. he he says that that you know samuelson is being sarcastic with that and saying that that's you know the idea that people have of him but that's not really what it is right yeah uh and uh he you know so like i said at the beginning he says quote 
The monopolist, parenthetical, in most respects properly, receives a great share of the blame for the vicissitudes of our free enterprise system. So he is recognizing there, there is some level of blame that is appropriate to put on monopolists. Uh -huh. you know, this is the 1950s, there was Standard Oil, these gigantic companies that were around at the time. They are all there. But then, as I said, he goes on to just laugh at, sarcastically remark about these textbook professors who are talking about the evils of monopolists and how big business uh, results in less opportunities for individuals, those small business owners that people are supposed to love so much. Mm -hmm. uh, the monopolists suck away opportunities from them. He says then, quote, the author's animosity towards big business is outspoken, and indications are abundant that large business and free enterprise are irreconcilable in his mind. That's what he's reading from these textbooks. And, you know, again, it's that sort of thing where Buckley, I mentioned before, is an unabashed supporter of big business and monopoly. He pretended there, and much weaker than we've seen from people like Glenn Beck, was that pretending that he's actually against these sort of you know, big business interests oh, yeah. and monopolists. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Loves to. Because all he's doing here is shitting on uh, all the, the people who think there's anything wrong with that. And I will say, um, normally what I would do at this point is read the final paragraph of the chapter. The problem with me trying to do There that is here, no final paragraph. It's No. Fucking... There are four paragraphs he has clipped out of these textbooks he's complaining about, all interspersed with one sentence in between them. So he has one paragraph from Morgan, and then what Buckley writes is, we are to face the fact that, and then another paragraph from Morgan, and as also we must recognize that, another paragraph from Morgan, and of course nationalization, another paragraph from Morgan. Yeah. It's, and he has no response to that. That's the end of the section. Yep. So it's just him repeating what they say, and he's not, like I said, he's not attempting to rebut no. or make any arguments. Off Which he said saying. he he's wouldn't, just, to be fair. Well, he's just standing there sarcastically, assuming that the reader will agree with him and go, <laughs> look at how ridiculous these people are, uh -huh. saying things like, the policies which are needed for maintaining high production and employment are those which affect the environment in which business decisions are made. <laughs> idiots. <laughs> these idiots, these fools. <laughs> it's fucking dumb. But that is the end of the first half of Chapter 2 of God and Man at Yale by William F. Buckley. Um, Benedict, that one was a struggle to get through. That was tough. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was, uh, it was not good. So, yeah, we've gone a little bit over our usual time. We're an hour and 20 minutes, and, uh, you know, I hope that makes up a little bit in some ways for the audio issues of the last episode. Like I mentioned, we are going to have, uh, the next patron-only bonus episode come out on the regular feed, so everyone will get to hear it. Of course, if you want more, if you want all those chapters, you can go become a patron, over at patreon.com forward slash NYGBC. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. I got this all out of order this week. I was supposed to say that after I said that. But uh -huh, if you don't, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC, become a patron for as little as $2 an episode or $4 a month for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early releases of all of our episodes, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taro Tacanon, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson, and George Soros. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, look up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! Goodbye. Goodbye.
podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.